You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. And oh, before I get started, I think there's only one way to start this episode. Okay, yeah, we, I mean, we're in the 602 Club, so I feel like if, if you can't drink on this episode, I don't know which episode you can drink on. And here with me to commiserate, it's Christy Morris. Uh, you mean Poison Ivy. Oh, oh, Poison Ivy. I'm so sorry. I apologize. I apologize, Miss Ivy. Thank you so much for joining us, though, tonight. you I was going to say you do look a little bit different. Yes, I brightened up my hair color. My plants are very happy. Mm, and it's just not easy being green, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, uh. you know, to finish off this series here with the Batman films we had not finished covering, the person you can blame for this episode, John Mills. Robin. <laughs> cool party. Let's kick some ice. It's going to be a fun one. Oh, man. It really one. is going to be fun. I, I, uh, I'm going to preface this episode by saying there's going to be very little of us, I think, being able to talk too seriously about this film because... There's just no way to be serious about this film. So uh, we're going to be talking about Batman and Robin, of course, the bane of Batman films um, and their existence, really. And yes, Bane is in this film. So, yeah. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but Indeed. you can uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure that if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating review. Help people find the show. Uh, and we'll read that review out on the show to thank you. Uh, you can just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That makes uh, sure that you get all the episodes as soon as they drop, not just the two club, but any episodes of Snyder Cuts and assembling avengers you'll get those as well uh you can also find us on twitter at the 602 club we're on instagram at the 602 club tfm we would love to have you following us there you can find us online at trek.fm where you can see all that's happening on the network we have so many great things that are coming out that are new right now uh as well as going over to facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm or at least when facebook's actually working and we have the listeners only discussion group there called the babel conference where you can join I want to say a huge thank you to associate producers, of course, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah for supporting the show through Patreon. Guys, if you love the network and all that we're doing here, go to patreon.com and see how you can be part of our team. Um, honestly, we got some great contribution levels. We're going to be changing that as we move forward as well uh, to give you even more. Uh, and honestly, every little bit helps to make sure that uh, we keep all of the quality content coming to you. And again, that's patreon.com slash FM. So before we jump into anything else, I'm really interested to find out how both of you, you know, what was your first experience with Batman and Robin? Had you seen Batman Forever and you were excited about this coming out? How are you feeling as you came into this? 
Yeah. So uh, I actually saw every single one of the Tim Burton movies and then this one as well in the theaters uh, with my dad. And um, I'm sure he probably had to take me because A, I was too young to go alone. And then B, because I think this was rated PG-13. Um, but it was something that at the time I was really excited about because these movies were really my intro to Batman aside from the animated series and um, something that as a kid I thought was really fun. Um, but rewatching, you know, maybe I think a little differently as an adult. <laughs> That's a generous way of putting it. I, <laughs> I had seen Batman forever uh, and my brother, I, you know, We've talked about my brother was a big comic book fan. I came to Batman through him, all of that sort of thing. So, of course, my brother and I were going to go see this movie together. And we were both sort of like gritting our teeth, hoping for the best. We were saying things like, well, you know, I mean, Schwarzenegger's still pretty cool, right? That's, you know, it's Mr. Freeze. That's pretty neat. That, that'd be, oh, you know, Uma Thurman. Okay. Poison Ivy. We, you know, we're trying to like be as, you know, optimistic as possible, as positive as mm -hmm. possible going into it. And I remember what theater I saw it in. I remember the row I was in. And I remember the moment at which I looked over at my brother in disbelief at something on screen. He didn't even look at me. He just raised his <laughs> hand to stop me from making a comment. Just closed his eyes for a second as if to say, let's just get through it. And then he put his hand down. And we just got through it. We just went through the thing. And it was, um, oh, it was exquisite torture. And uh, it actually, as soon as it was released on uh, VHS video cassette, we rented it. And actually, I think my brother might have bought it right away. That compulsive comic book fan sort of thing where it's like, even if you hate it, you must possess it sort of thing. But um, we sat down to watch it. And we had immediately what was called uh, the, the Batman and Robin challenge, which was how long could you get through the movie without making a comment? And we never made it past the credits. And it became, that that was the joke. You couldn't make it even past the credits. And it was, uh, so that that's my first set of experiences with Batman and Robin. A movie which I've hate watched many, many times through the years since. Nice. And you remember what row you were in. That's crazy. Well, the thing is, I grew up in a small town, uh, much like the John Mellencamp song says. And uh, there was one movie theater. It didn't show up until I was in my teens. And so theater number one, the best seats in the house were theater were row in theater number one. It was rows three through eight were the best seats. And I preferred row seven a little bit off to the side. So if you had to get up and go to the bathroom, you could just step right out into the aisle. So wow, nice. that's where we like to watch our movies. That's yeah. cool. I also saw this in the theater with friends and, you know, after Batman Forever, which was a big deal, obviously, it came out. I remember how excited I was when that came out, and I thought, oh, yay, Batman and Robin, this should be fun. And, you know, then, of course, I actually saw the movie, and that was not what I thought. And so, hmm. uh, and I, I think, you know, at after this film, too, you know, I definitely didn't want this to continue in this way, and, and was very excited, of course, you know, when the next thing, Batman-wise, that they announced was Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. I mean, nothing could have been better or more music to our ears, I think, at that point. We had no idea what we were going to be mm -hmm. in store for. And if you want to check out those episodes, you can check out John Mills 
and Tristan Riddell and I talking about the Nolan franchise of Batman here on the 602 Club. So one of the things I think, you know, just to talk a little bit seriously just about the film itself is that, you know, we get Schumacher here trying to mimic the camp style of the 60s. That's literally what he's going through for in this film. Um, basically, you know, John Glover, who plays uh, Dr. Jason Woodwoo, says that you'd have Schumacher reminding everybody, this is a cartoon, which is weird because the Batman the Animated Series is one of the best Batman things ever done, and it doesn't feel like this at all. Um, Chris, you mentioned on the outline the fact that, I mean, there's just so many terrible jokes. I mean, there is not a pun mm-hmm. left unturned. Like, it's, I, if if the pun is there, they will take it. Um, and I, I think, you know, this movie is complete with Penny Whistle Falls. It, I just, I, I don't understand what they were thinking especially coming off Batman Forever, which, aside from some of the silliness in that film, it, it does have some, like, serious, like, we're, we're, we are trying to, like, unlock the character of Bruce Wayne and Batman and the, the duality there. We're, we're at least pretending to have something to do with that. Here, there's no pretense whatsoever. Yeah, it, it goes so far into the joke specifically. The joke and the sexiness, I would call it, are the two things that you see the most of in this movie, which is hilarious when, once again, it's supposed to be a Batman movie, that it's not really much about Batman. Um, if anything, it's more just, you know, about sometimes Batman's butt. <laughs> well, yeah. Or Robin's yeah, it's, butt, um, or Batgirl's butt, or... Or even, Robin's nipples, even <laughs> Freeze's butt at one point. And I, the thing, the thing is that there's a, you know, like they they turn this around super fast. They obviously learned all of the wrong lessons from Batman Forever, and instead of slowing down and saying, okay, what worked and what didn't, they said, we just want a movie in two years or less, get it done, mm-hmm. and they scramble. And it's very obvious that the script is basically a copy and paste from Batman Forever, just with all of the dark stuff taken out of it. Uh, Schumacher has since accepted blame for the movie and said, well, he did because he's he's passed on, but like he accepted blame and said, you know, I wanted to do something darker, but the studio wanted something more kid friendly. Now, I think a significant part of that is it is at its core revisionism because he he obviously was full tilt on board with this. And I think that if there's a movie that encapsulates the problem with the 1990s thinking, the sort of cultural thinking, the lack of seriousness, the obsession with sex, the all of the stuff that made the 90s sort of a drag by the end of them is contained here in this movie. And it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, it's sort of a really wild whiplash effect when you realize that this is the same franchise that breathed new life into the whole superhero genre in 1989, came out of left field, 
completely blew everybody away, created a whole subgenre of things that just come out as fast as possible, like Star Wars. It's just a rush of imitators trying to fill the space there. And that exact same franchise by the fourth one turns into a joke of itself, like, and not even a funny joke of itself. It turns into this, which is just, it's just a nightmare. It's so bad. Well, and it sucks because in a way, you know, we've talked about that some people really identify with and grew up with the 60s Batman and love Adam West and, you know, more than any other version of Batman. But the problem is when you try to do it in this kind of um, backdrop that's already supposed to come across more dark and gritty, it doesn't work. And I don't think that Schumacher should have taken all of the blame for that either, because it's every bit as much the fault of the screenplay. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, this screenplay was the reason that uh, Akiva Goldsman's name was garbage in my mm-hmm. eyes. For Like, I, I never I didn't forgive him for this for many, many years. I still but, haven't um, forgiven I, him, honestly. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. No, I but, mean, but, <clears throat> but Star Trek these days, but, you know. Well, yeah, uh, but. You know, Christy, you mentioned the the 60s TV show. The 60s TV show is still endearing and fun to watch because Adam West approached the role the same way Christopher Reeve approached the role in 1978 of Superman, where even if there was a little bit of camp and corniness to it, the main character was very earnest. He was serious. Mm -hmm. He was there. He was the grounding factor necessary for all of the craziness to go on around him and that's what happens here that goes wrong is this is completely unmoored Clooney has no idea what he's doing Chris O'Donnell is just there I I mean if there's if there's somebody I truly feel really badly for it's Chris O'Donnell because this really seems to have put the brakes on his career very severely um you know, Schwarzenegger, his career was sort of petering out. This was his last gasp attempt at a big blockbuster sort of thing. And I think this was the movie where finally everybody was kind of like, you know, Arnold isn't Arnold anymore. Uma Thurman comes out of it okay. Um, and it's really Chris O'Donnell is the one where it's like, oh, no, he didn't know. You know, like, and and so I, I just wind up feeling feeling badly for him. But that's really what the movie lacks is that grounding principle to it mm-hmm. that needs to be there. And it, as much as I don't like Batman Forever too much, that's what Kilmer was trying to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and any part of that movie that works is because Kilmer showed up with that sensibility in place. And it's probably what caused some of the conflict between him and Schumacher. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, and it is really sad because to me, you know, the theme of loss that Bruce and Freeze both have in the sense of, you know, with Freeze with his wife and Bruce with the thought of losing Alfred, there's so much there that you could be doing thematically, right, with those two characters. And it it could be a really driving force for the film. And yet it's not there because, like you said, there's there is no grounding for the film in any kind of reality, really. And it all is kind of just a big joke. I mean, I don't think anybody ever watching this film is ever worried that Alfred's going to die, you know, uh, and and that should right. be a driving and motivating force throughout this entire film that, you know, Bruce should be terrified that this one parent figure is about to leave, Ra- you know, 
you should have the, the character of Dick Grayson being, you know, terrified that, you know, this, 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 this mediator between, you know, him and Bruce is, is about to leave, you know, and then of course, you know, for the, the character that Elisa Silverstone plays here, uh, of, of his, um, niece, you know, she should also be terrified of the fact that, that, you know, her uncle may pass away and, and nobody really mm-hmm. has any fear here in this movie of that. And then, of course, there's no real good connection thematically with the fact that that's what's driving Freeze, too. Like, really, he's not necessarily just a villain. He really is somebody who his whole goal is to be able to save his wife's life. And that's yeah. what dri- well, that's what's driving him to do all of these, you know, quote unquote, terrible things. And I just it's so disappointing that you really have a very nice thematic element staring you in the face just ready to be dove into just so deeply and it's not even surface level here because it's not there at all well perhaps they got distracted when they were constructing mr freeze's lair uh which has spotlights on it uh rotating and for some reason a giant heat button that uh i'm sorry lever that can turn everything from cold to hot because why would you have you never know when you're gonna need it john that doesn't make yeah. sense but yeah, well and you know when you have the people with the frozen dinners that are sitting there and then vivica a fox trying to woo him and why why well that yeah that, exactly why why does he even have like if he if he's dedicated to his wife <laughs> why does he have the attractive sidekick like i don't i don't know I, what's happening yeah. with that and if he <laughs> it just but, reminds but, but me at the same of- time the Emperor's New Groove. Why do we even have that lever cronk? <laughs> right. Yeah. I I I just it it's it's definitely one of those things where Schumacher is trapped in I it, it's kind of weird and hard to try to try to state but it feels like he didn't keep up with the fact that comics as a genre themselves had changed since he was a kid mm-hmm. and i think it's fine if he had come in and he did his own movie that wasn't in this franchise that was like that i think everybody would have plugged into it and said oh that's cute you're doing a funny spoofy homage to what you grew up watching that's awesome it's just that it's it's shoehorned in here but in terms of the thematic stuff it's so confused and it's so overstuffed with just pointless stage business that there's not a chance of anything happening that has any sort of like story element that means anything in this movie that, you know, you should be able with, with a truly well-crafted film, there should be at least one thing you can ask somebody as they're walking out the door. It's like, well, what do you think this movie was trying to say? I, I would have, just replied nothing this wasn't trying to say anything like at all it, it wasn't right. even trying to say thanks for spending your money it was just like all right we got two hours let's whatever and then we showed it was you done. a thing yeah yeah showed you a thing and that was over <laughs> okay and yeah. uh and yeah well i mean <laughs> i i know i could just keep lathering on so just i'll, I'll stop i'll stop so well i did want to add uh, to go kind of with you what you were saying matt about the um 
parallel of Bruce's story and Mr. Freeze's story, they also did touch on in the movie um, the similarities between Batgirl and Robin's stories of both losing their parents in a tragic accident. And it's like, there's yet another thing that you could have delved deeper into that would have been a really good plot point and something deeper than just all of the nonsense. Um, and it was just barely mentioned and then passed by. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that the other thing that really hurts this movie that I have to also um, put off on Akiva Goldsman is the dialogue of trying so hard to show we are PC <laughs> was super annoying. Like it, having Robin shoot the batarang or whatever and it n- miss and then Batgirl shoot it and say, no, I've got you. And, it, you know, like when she's fighting Ivy and she deliberately says, using your good looks and your wiles to get your way, you make all women look bad. I'm just like, oh, shut up. <laughs> uh, we all, all do it we all know we do it no one cares <laughs> it, it's it's a fair criticism uh to be sure and it's um you know the the whole barbara gordon or barbara whatever her last name is in this wilson wilson, wilson. This yeah film. that's yeah. fine whatever i i mean it's also a lot of fun to watch i, I okay Alicia Silverstone is out of her depth, mm-hmm. whether it's this movie or even if this movie were done by a different director, she's not, she's not quite sure why she's there is I think the best way I can put that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the only reason she's there is her name was suddenly hot. So it's like, okay, let's put Alicia Silverstone in it. And that was it. That was it. It's the same, re- but it's the same reason uh, Uma Thurman's in there. Uma Thurman was still, you know, riding high on uh, Pulp Fiction, yeah, uh, Karma. So yeah, let's put Uma Thurman in there. Um, and Clooney was, you know, trying to break out to be a star and everything like that. But Alicia Silverstone really, the vibe from her throughout the entire film is just somebody who he she's she's that 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 student in class that signed up for the wrong class and doesn't want to admit it. And so is just trying to make it through and you're sitting there and you're like, Oh no, no, no. You wanted Calc one, not Calc two that you're, you're in the wrong (laughs) classroom. Just, just pack your books up and go over. Okay. So yeah. Sorry. Did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) I snort laughed at that. (laughs) Well, thank you. I I think, you know, you're absolutely right, John. Uh, Alicia Silverstone basically plays this almost the exact same way she did Clueless. And yep. it works for Clueless, but you can't be a Clueless Batgirl. I mean, right. like, none of her line delivery here works for this film whatsoever. Um, and... You know, in all honesty, I wouldn't say her line delivery is worse than Chris O'Donnell's, uh, you know. So, you know, at least she's got that. Um, But, Hmm. yeah, I I think you're rightly pegged. It's just that they absolutely picked a person that had no business being in this film whatsoever uh, and being this character. And she was their only choice because, like you said, she was a hot actress at the time and... 
you know, they, they figured this would get the teenage boys excited to be here and get them into the theater. And so, of course, we're going to choose her. And it's just not the way to cast a movie. And I do think that one of the and, and I. I think one of the things that this goes to show is this was the time where 90s films were in the job and in in the habit of just casting people because they had a big name, not because they they had anything to do with or could bring to life a role in a way that would make you believe it. And I think that became one of the biggest issues and is the biggest issue with this film is that almost every single role here is miscast. Um, and it should not have been the person that had should have been playing the role. Uh, and so no. uh, I, wait, wait, the only wait, one wait, here wait, wait, wait. is, is, is Alfred, you know, that, that oh, hold works. On. Now, see, see, the thing is you're telling me that you don't believe that Arnold Schwarzenegger is an Olympic triathlete, super doctor who can figure out how to cure the world's most baffling disease while being saddled with the uh, the tremendous disadvantage of having to be in a diamond-powered suit that keeps him forever sub-zero? Yeah, you know, um, no, Arnold Schwarzenegger is basically the Christmas Jones of this film. Um, and if you don't get oh, that brutal. reference, brutal. go listen that to is our uh, – uh, the world is not enough episode of James Bond because that's basically <laughs> mm-hmm. what he is in this movie. And would you know that Ed Harris or Anthony Hopkins or Patrick Stewart were all considered for the role? I can't even imagine how great it would have been to have any of those guys. I'm glad they weren't. Would you yeah. want their resume sullied with this? Would you want to look on IMDb and say, you know, the Patrick Stewart is great, but man... Batman and Robin, yeek! Uh, right? But see, Patrick they Stewart was in a bad fate. Pat- Patrick Stewart was in Excalibur. He knows exactly what to do in this type of film, and he—I think he could have been campy and, and had more legitimacy all at the same time. No, nothing overcomes this movie. There is nothing. There is no single piece you can move. There is no single actor or actress you can replace that is going to save this thing. This thing. No, is, that is true. Doomed from frame one. I, I I get what you're saying uh, completely, but what I'm saying is, is that if more of the actors had been better choices in the roles, it could have helped the film. I do think that that's the case. I think that if Freeze had been better, I think that if a Batgirl had been better, you know, I think that if you're gonna have this many villains, you know, and, and Poison Ivy, I think that could have been better. Batman, obviously, all of these people could be better because you can make something out of not a great role. And I think that Val Kilmer showed that you can do that in Batman Forever where you can ground the role uh, and make it work. But, you know, I, I just and so that's where I would rather have had better people in these roles. So at least something about this film wouldn't just feel like an absolute train wreck. Whereas I feel like every casting decision they make in this film is an absolute train wreck. Yeah. But again, I, I just, I, I think anybody that wound up not getting cast in this film probably <laughs> counted their lucky stars. <laughs> I mean, yeah. true. The, the direction for poison mm-hmm. Ivy, whoever was going to be in that role was eh, do may West. That's fine. Okay. 
And Mr. Freeze was like, stand there and glow. Sure. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. So let's talk, though, about Uma Thorman was Poison Ivy because you put Sharon Stone in that role and she can make it work Uh, because she doesn't come across so campy because Sharon Stone has the, I mean, when we talk about the, you know, uber sexiness of the 90s, that is Sharon Stone. That is who she is. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you're getting the message from the director, as Christy pointed out, hey, everybody, right. remember it's a cartoon. Well, gosh, you know, what What else is she going to do except just amp it up and then eventually say, you know, the check's clearing. So, sure, whatever. I'll give you what you want, Maybe. Joel. And, and But the thing is, in his defense, while we're sitting here and, you know, the, <laughs> I always, whenever I hear Joel Schumacher's name, I always think of the robot chicken where he's at a uh, sci-fi convention and somebody spots him and they go, he's history's greatest monster and they attack him. But by all accounts, he was actually a really nice guy. Everybody loved working with. He was always very supportive. He was always very nice. He was always very just just a really good guy to work with. Uh, So none of this is a reflection on him as a person. But his direction right. here no, very I, clearly I'm, I'm was never going to attack take a person. But oh, I mean, no, I, yeah. I, I know. But it, like it, it's I'm always very cognizant of the fact that sometimes people can hear it that way. Sure. And so sure. I want to, you know, j- just wanted to to say that for my own, you know, sort of peace of mind sort of thing. But he really did just spend. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's. I would have loved somebody to have dug a little deeper with him because in later years when he started doing the revisionist piece and saying, I wanted something darker, I wanted something different, I wanted something with more weight to it, I was just giving the studio what it wanted, was this something where he showed up at work and said, listen, guys, they're not serious about it. Let's not be serious about it. Let's just get this thing done. We have X number of days to shoot it. Let's get our setups efficient. Two, three takes, great. We're done. Get off set. That sort of thing. Like, I wonder if that, if this movie is a reflection of a director who's like, you know what? They're just, they're just telling me what to do and I don't have a chance to put a stamp on it. So fine, whatever. It might be. I mean, I, I still, though, think it's a combination of also not only direction, but being given just bad dialogue. Mm. Um, and then, you know, a, a combination of also being told specifically with Uma Thurman, her delivery delivery is really weird. Mm-hmm. It seems very deliberately slow and also with some kind of it, it feels like she's the mustache twirling villain in this and it not in a good way. Mm-hmm. 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 It's just more like I'm going, okay, get to the point. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, it, but the costuming I thought was really cool. I think that that's the thing that like stands out to me in this movie that I think is still like an entertaining piece of it because it's so wild. But I think that those other pieces then impact it so much that you can't look past that stuff. Well, what's interesting, too, is with Ivy's uh, origin point in this movie where she goes underground and the chemicals act on her and she comes back out of the ground Mm -hmm. sort of thing. I know that's something that even I have sort of harped on is like, oh, this is so ridiculous. And then I think back to Batman Returns and Michelle Pfeiffer's origin is Catwoman. Sure. And I, I wind up a little more lenient because I think to myself, well, you know. 
Burton sort of set the precedent here with people coming back from the dead through mysterious means. So eh, maybe I won't be so tough on Ivy as a character for uh, the way she comes back in this one. Right. So. And I mean, hey, having the kiss of death is a cool power. Yeah. That part's not that bad to me. But yeah. And then the, but the rubber lips. I hate the oh, part with the rubber you know, lips. I mentioned this before when we were talking about Batman Forever, I think. And I said, <laughs> soon we get to rubber lips. Rubber <laughs> lips. Oh, rubber lips. Oh my gosh. I still, oh, jeez. But uh, hey, I'm not complaining. I mean, if I could kiss Chris O'Donnell, I would. So. You know, that's where I feel cheated, maybe. Well, okay, I, I kiss Uma Thurman. All right, that's fine. Yeah. I was, I was about to say, there's nobody in here that I feel I can kiss. I'm like, no, no, Uma Thurman, I could kiss. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think one of the things that obviously we do have to talk about is the fact that we have a, a new Batman. Part of that was that you did have Val Kilmer, um, not returning here as Batman. Um, one of the big issues is because they want to do this movie so quickly, and and that does lead them to uh, him having a scheduling conflict because he's going to be doing the Saint. Um, and you know, uh, they William Baldwin was considered, but they go with Clooney. Obviously, he's a really hot name here. You know, he's huge, uh, of course, uh, with ER at the time, and. You know, it's interesting because Clooney can be very good. You know, I've seen him in films where he's excellent, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is because he's not just being George Clooney. You know, like he's really acting. And here he's basically just being Clooney, which is the same person he was on ER. Uh, You know, which is it's all his mannerisms. It's all his kind of classic mannerisms. And there's, there's of course, no depth or seriousness here. And it is just too bad because, and this is where I argue that I feel like if everybody else had been cast better, you, the, the actors can challenge one another a little bit. So I imagine Clooney playing off somebody like an Ed Harris or, you know, Patrick Stewart or, you know, uh, playing off of, you know, Sharon Stone um, or, you know... Somebody else's Batgirl, I, I think, you know, Chris O'Donnell, you're stuck with uh, because that that's, you know, you're bringing him back. But, I you know, I even think of having Clooney against Golf here as Alfred. And I like I think they could do more together in their scenes if if just I don't know, I the problem is, is that like Clooney is not a terrible choice, but he definitely leans into, I think this is a paycheck and peace out. I remember behind the scenes stuff that was released before the film came out that made it look interesting because they showed Clooney and Schumacher sitting in an editing bay, watching that scene where uh, freeze is running through the chilled out smokestack and closing the doors and they're coming in behind him where Robin eventually gets frozen Mm -hmm. uh, at the, at the end of that chase. Mm -hmm. And it looked, you know, you're just seeing it on the monitor that they're looking at. And it was a feeling of, Oh, maybe this could kind of be pretty good. And I remember Clooney 
in that moment, and I think he said this repeatedly in a couple of different things where he said, you know, if the franchise dies, just blame it on me. Everybody else has had a hit before this. And so it seemed very self-effacing, but I wonder if he was sort of signaling to everybody that he was being a good sport and he could see where this was going to end up because there's no way that any of these actors watched early rough cuts of this and thought, oh, this is going to be it. This is going to be the Batman movie that everybody's going to be talking about. But but at the same time, movie was a success. It was. It wasn't a, a huge, you know, uh, ridiculous smash, but like it had a huge opening weekend. It had a very healthy box office return, and it still managed to kill the franchise, which mm-hmm. is just one of those things where it's it's so fascinating because everybody insists that it's just the money that keeps the franchise going. Well, if that's the case, we should have gotten a fifth one directed by Joel Schumacher, but we didn't. Yeah, if that's so. the case, mm-hmm. we would have gotten more Justice League movies, or we would have gotten more you know, Batman v Superman style right. movies, but you know, it's not about the money. No. And you know, I think we're all glad that there was not a follow up to this movie because apparently it was in development and it was yep. called Batman Unchained. Oh yeah. And uh, I was like, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. What, one of the other titles tossed around there was like Batman triumphant. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but like, Okay. Just humor me on this because let's say we're in an alternate universe and this movie makes enough money to warrant the sequel. They decide to green light a sequel. Going from this point, is there anything they could have changed about this, about this cast, about anything like that, that makes you look forward to a movie after this? Or would you have just, I can, I can tell you, even if they'd had another one come out after this, I said, ah, wait for video. I'm good, guys. I don't need mm-hmm. to see that one. Is there anything they could have done to pull you into the movie theater after this? Uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, to me, I think that either they need to then go back to having Kilmer come back as Batman would mm. have been a big thing to maybe signal to me they're going in a more serious direction again, um, or maybe have it be about um freezes revenge on ivy because he's you know we end on this one with him finding out that she killed his wife and now they're cellmates at arkham mm-hmm. that i think would be a cool angle um but yeah i think that those are two big things that would have been good you know for a follow-up movie so you're saying they could have gotten you into the movie theater after this yeah if I had seen that there were big things that they would have changed like that, like that might have. Matt, what about you? What could they have done? I don't know. I mean, I I think it's it's a really interesting question, you know, and and it's it's one that I kind of I guess I have thought about as what I have wanted to see another movie in this continuation and I mean when I ah, gosh <laughs> you know the, the the sad part is here like I do think Christie's on to something like maybe if Kilmer comes back maybe if they recast Elisa Silverstone with somebody else I mean gosh when you think of actresses that are mm. in the same age range you know you've got people like 
Angelina Jolie, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard, even Cameron Helen Hunt. Diaz, you know, uh, mm. um, you know, I, Charlize Theron, you know, um, I just, the, the list is endless of, of, of actresses in that age range who I think would be phenomenal. Right. Um, and, and could pull this role off much better. Um, you know, and I think, you know, when I, uh, gosh, Ava Green or Angeline Lilly, I mean, gosh, the, 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 the list mm-hmm. is endless, right? Um, you know, I think one of the things too, you know, this the movie also just, it never helped itself with the fact that it doesn't take itself seriously because you know, Batman's dating Elle McPherson. She's not a real actress. She's supermodel <laughs> pretending to be an actress. You know, it's just like, it, none of this makes sense. And so I I don't know. I think I think that they had dug themselves into a hole that they were never going to get out of with this one. And partially mm-hmm. that's because this movie legitimately deserves all of the vitriol and kind of like hate that it gets and because it's it's a absolutely terrible film and and I think one of the parts that goes with that is that John you've mentioned this before and it's 100% true that they lean into all of the wrong lessons from Batman Forever, and the production design makes this even more neon and even more ridiculous and even more over the top with Gotham as a city, the suits that they create, the Batmobiles and the motorcycle and the snowmobile. And, uh, you know, I mean... And what's with the bridge that's on, like, Atlas's shoulders up in the middle of the air, the same height as a skyscraper? Valid question. Valid question. Nobody knows the answer. (laughs) Um, It really seems as if Gotham City has been... Like, even in a comic book, when they laid out cities, they at least drew on their knowledge of places like New York... Because they lived in New York in most of the publishing houses, so they at least understood how a city worked. This right, yeah. Gotham City, and even to an extent the the Gotham City in Batman Forever, but especially here in Batman and Robin, this is a city designed by a child who's never been to a city before. <laughs> and you <laughs> look at point. it and you say, that's cute, but how's everybody getting everywhere? Train through his ears. Oh, okay. Cool cool not practical might have to scale this back just a little bit or the observatory <laughs> where the observatory is yeah how's everybody getting up there right like it, you know a nice safe journey up to the observatory seems like it takes a solid 20 minutes on an express elevator who's going up there for a cocktail party nobody or where the hell was the motorcycle race taking place Oh, that's that's a great question. Uh, you know, and the thing is, as uh, as Star Wars fans, we're all very spoiled by a franchise that concerns itself very much with the idea of place and being able to put yourself mentally in a spot. But I really think the most important thing to remember about where that motorcycle race happens is that it is where the banker played by Coolio lives. And that's yes. a character I think we can all agree really deserved his own spinoff. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, he was going to play Scarecrow in the next movie. Oh, joy. That would have been fantastic. (laughs) I would have been thrilled with that choice. Can we talk about the fact that Alfred designed the suit for Barbara 
And oh, oh, oh it, yeah. And he's her uncle. He's her uncle. Yeah. And it and it has like yeah. a thong front and a corset top. And I I mean, and then of course Alfred must be designing the the men's suits as well. And and that raises other questions about Alfred as well. <laughs> like um, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Alfred also is able to uh, build uh, a, a brain algorithm so that the computer can be him, mm, uh, which, yeah. you know, wonderful artifact of the 1990s is these things like algorithms and the Internet were so bafflingly new to people who were not nerds that the writers for movies would have them. You know, you, you just look at... Um, it's a few years later, but uh, like Swordfish with Hugh Jackman, mm-hmm. where if anybody who's worked with any bit of code looks at that movie, it's like, that's, that's not what coding works like. That's not at all yeah. what it's like. And then you look at this and it's like uh, he he's th- this Max Headroom type thing. And as soon as he said, I programmed my brain algorithm, that was another moment where I looked over at my brother and he put up his hand and closed his eyes. Not right now. We'll talk <laughs> after the movie. It's like, all right, fine. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the the world's toughest password, too. Hey, way to go. You made a brain algorithm that reacts like you, but your password is your sister's name on a photo next to the computer. Okay. This is, you know what? It's it's Sorrento-level incompetence, uh, like in Ready Player One, where the the, the password was written on the, uh, the sticky note on his chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, that enabled everything. That's so, almost a yeah. tough call. Would I rather watch this or Ready Player One? Mm. Oh, Ready Player One any day. Ready of the Player week. One. Mm. Ready yeah. Player One at least is competently put together. Like there's, yeah, there's we at could least... argue about that later. Um... Uh, oh, okay. No, there's at least a story <laughs> in Ready Player One that makes sense with beginning, middle, end. It's this, true. I'm this just is teasing. a fever dream. I'm just teasing. yeah. Like, and side note, wait about the suits. Okay. The intro to this movie has so many zoom ins and outs of every piece of gear they pick up and put on and the front and the back and specifically crotch and butt shots. I mean, and you're just like, when are we going to be done getting dressed? (laughs) I mean, this movie should have just been called butt shots. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) it's a different movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that gets rated PG thirteen. But I would say that maybe maybe the dressing sequences are maybe there's some vestige of like they were trying to get the runtime longer, and they're like just more shots, put more insert shots more in. Shots. It's like just yeah. put more shots, yeah, more, just put more shots yeah. in. We need more dressing. And then uh, when we first see, maybe it's not when we first see Mister Freeze, but at one point when he's, I think it's when he's shooting the freeze ray down into the furnace. It's like a strobe light going off in your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the surfing. I mean, what's, the surfing. Yeah. Yeah. What's absolutely crazy, though, right, is while the effects are not great, this, I think, is overlooked in the fact that they really did push a couple of boundaries with CG here moving it further along the way. And I think they escape with some of their integrity attacked because of the fact that it's so cartoonishly designed that it doesn't call as much attention to itself as 
newfangled computer graphics. It's not trying to be as realistic as other environments. And so I think they get away with pushing a couple of boundaries here. They're actually pretty successful in terms of moving the technology forward. I mean, I still don't like looking at it, but they were at least able to put something together. Wouldn't that's a plus. So there's a positive note for you. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Now, John, I know you don't like Elliot Goldenthal's score for Batman Forever. No. Which nope. you're completely wrong about, because compared to this, that is like Beethoven's fifth. I, I, I don't detect any real difference between them. Oh, oh they're, no, they're no, 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 no. That has actual this, thematic work. This and theme, like, no, no, this, no. this, this score is so chintzy and cheesy. It totally, I mean, it leans into the penny whistle fullness of it all. And it's awful. I, um, I'm just going to have to respectfully disagree because it all starts just with that main theme, which if I go to hell, always a fair shot that that's going to happen. That's playing over the loudspeakers when I go into the waiting room. Like that's how I'll know which end I wound up on as I'll walk in and I'll hear that theme song. I'm like, oh, great, great. It's going to be this for eternity. As I could have had Star Wars, but no, 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 no. I got this. I, I don't, I don't think that. You know, and the thing is, I, I don't want to hack on Goldenthal too much because he's he's an accomplished composer. He's done some great work with his career. I just don't think that this is this is it. I, I don't think Batman Forever well, I, is either. But, I mean, I don't no. think this is at all. That's what I'm saying. I think Batman Forever is actually a good score. I think this one is, I mean, leans into the cartoonishness of it so much that it, it's not really... Uh, I mean, it might as well be uh, the score for a Looney Tunes film. Yeah. Well, it that is a good point that it it doesn't actually even follow a logical pattern is also part of the problem. You know, it it does occasionally have a good theme, but then there's the parts with like I'm thinking of the the motorcycle race, for example. It introduces this weird electronic, maybe supposed to sound digital, new wave something. And then we'll completely switch gears. It's just really weird and also not good. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, we're talking about the music. I think that one of the biggest highlights of where the music goes completely wrong and that the, the direction is all wrong, all of that stuff is the weird party that Ivy crashes where they're bidding on people in a very uncomfortable fashion and mm-hmm. uh the and the the score uh, actually goes in and starts playing the the classic song poison ivy when she's going up on stage and everything like that and that that i think just encapsulates everything that's wrong with the music is that it's e- even if you think that batman forever is a good score then this is just an echo of that so yeah. i think it just like everybody else, it's Goldenthal showing up and saying, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. All right, fine. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's <laughs> ratings time because I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's anything really uh, left to discuss about this film um, because, you know, it's just not coherent enough to have more of a conversation. So, uh, John, what do you rate Batman and Robin? Half star. I will never watch this movie again in my life. I've hate watched it many, many times through the years. And this last time that I was watching it, I, I literally just said about halfway through, I said, why, 
why have I wasted so many minutes of my life watching this more than once? At, like, I'm just, I'm at the point now where it's just retired. I'm just, I can't do it. I'm sure that in five or 10 years, uh, like one of my kids will be like, oh, let's watch a Batman movie. And I'm like, you know what? Kind of tick daddy off. We're going to watch this one instead, instead of the good one. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think I ever come back to this again. This is a half star. Ugh. You mean you won't eventually kind of forget and be like, I don't know, maybe. And then no, you'll I, start it again and go, <laughs> oh. No, I. I never forgot. It was always a conscious choice of some days you watch a bad movie because you think to your, you can watch a bad movie. You can think to yourself, you know, I might've messed up today at work. I didn't mess up that bad. It's okay. Mm -hmm. So it's not a win necessarily, but it wasn't catastrophic. Yeah. The movie made me feel better. It works. I'm sort of in the same boat, but maybe a little more forgiving of it just because of the nostalgia, I guess for me of that time in my life. Um, and, and that I didn't hate it as much as I've hated some other things. Um, for example, I don't ever remember seeing the movie ghosts of girlfriends past, but apparently I did in the theater cause I found a ticket stub. Oh no. It was a terrible movie anyway. Um, so there are worse things, <laughs> but, um, I, I give it a one out of five stars because I still like little bits here and there. Um, even though overall it's just really confusing and kind of a mess. Um, and it, like I said, Chris O'Donnell, really good looking height <laughs> of his career. That was totally cool for me. He looked great in the suit. If you're ever going to wear a suit that form fitting, that's the time to do it. <laughs> so, uh, and then my only other complaint too to add to the list is, um, the handling of the, the Barbara character, as somebody who is a fan of uh, Batgirl from the comics, um, I didn't like that they changed it to Barbara Wilson and that she's not even related to Commissioner Gordon. Um, and, you know, no reference to like the killing joke and stuff. So can you imagine this Commissioner Gordon having a child? I mean, because no. apparently no one would marry him, yeah. I guess. No, mm-hmm. he, he's just married to the job. This Commissioner Gordon, he's so he's very yeah. serious, man. Absolutely That's what he tells himself at night. Man. So, poor Pat Hingle, another yeah. accomplished actor, mm-hmm. taken out with this yep. franchise. Ugh. Uh, I'm going to give this half a butt shot. So just half a cheek. <laughs> so just uh, one cheek. Just you just need a to be careful cheek. with just that single cheek. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> that's because I'm going to go by the John Mill. Uh, you know, isn't it like half a star as long as nobody's died in a film? Half a star if you did not accidentally kill somebody during the filming. So yes, that's, zero stars means yeah. I wish somebody had died during the filming because it might have prevented the movie from being released. <laughs> that's kind of how I. I mean, that's the the only redeeming quality of this film. And I say that in the sense of I did not. I haven't seen this movie in so many years. I did not remember it being this bad, and it's legitimately one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's just that bad and it is disappointing but you know and it, and it's so funny because i feel like so many batman movies are talked about in such hushed tones you know like oh batman films as if none of them have ever been bad but legitimately in this run of films there's only been one good movie and it was batman 89 
Uh, I'll give Batman 66 a pass just because it's it's it, it it's fine. But I mean, like... It's of its th- time. Yeah, it's of its time. Yeah. Right, exactly. But none of these other films are really... And, and I, you know, I definitely struggled with Batman Forever because there's some nostalgia tied into that. And, and I can't legitimately say it's a good film. But, you know, I'd, I'd watch that one again. But like you, John, I will never watch this film again. It's just, it's not worth any of my time and in fact it wasn't honestly worth any of my time to rewatch it but you know i'm I'm a consummate professional when it comes to this show and (laughs) if we're going to talk about a movie i'm going to watch the movie before we talk about it um and so yeah i'm i'm glad we're done with this series for sure and i'm glad that it's time for recommendations and so as John has to think of one, Christy, where Mm-mm. oh oh go oh, no. excuse me, He's John has one. one ready to I go. Actually have one. It's a it's a yeah. first here, folks, on the six hundred two club. <laughs> I actually remembered before he asked. Yes, and I'm so excited about it. Okay, and I don't know if I've recommended it before because I I've been on this show I think for like thirty consecutive years at this point. But uh, there is a Japanese movie from 1977 that I watched for missing frames over on the nerd party with uh, Sean Eastridge. Uh, It is a Japanese film. It's available on HBO max right now. It's called house. That's, that's its name is house. It is not to be confused. There was a movie called house that came out in, I think 1985 that was directed by Steve minor. That's a horror movie. George went has a small role in it. Never seen it. That is not the movie we're talking about. House from 1977, Japanese film. You will either give it zero stars or five stars. It is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life, and I can't stop thinking about it ever since. And uh, so I encourage people to go on out and sample House. You'll know you'll have the right one because it's 1977 and... It, you know, it's in Japanese with subtitles. That's the way, you know, you have uh, the, the right one. So, and again, it's included on HBO Max right now. It's part of the Criterion Collection. So that adds some cachet for people there. So um, there you go. That's my recommendation. Also not to be confused with the Hugh Laurie show House. Correct. Correct. This is not about <laughs> a cranky doctor with a limp. Not at all. <laughs> also good, though. Yes. Good show. Uh, so my recommendation this time is actually going to be something um, a little bit different that I've recently gotten into. Um, I've probably already recommended people check out Good Mythical Morning on YouTube uh, with Rhett and Link, who are two best friends that do a YouTube show together. Um, but I also want to recommend another show that became a spinoff from that show called Mythical Kitchen. And it's actually where um, they had originally started doing all of these eating challenges on Good Mythical Morning and needed to get a chef who knew food to then be able to implement some of the stuff that they were going to eat into something that was edible. Um, Their joke became that it was boiled for safety every time they would say (laughs) boiled for safety. Um, So check out Mythical Kitchen with Chef Josh because it is so funny they also do some really cool things with food. Like he made a, a fine dining meal with every course using Reese's peanut butter cups Ooh. and, and said it was actually really good. Like a peanut butter cup crusted steak or something, for example. Um, yeah. Mm, that sounds yeah. delicious. 
So maybe don't watch it when you're hungry. Yeah. Maybe have food to watch it, you know, with. But anyway, so yeah, I highly recommend checking out Mythical Kitchen on YouTube with Chef Josh. Um, And he also, like me, tends to put his foot in his mouth and make everything into a dirty joke. So that's also (laughs) really entertaining. Very nice. One of the things I love most about Christy. um, Well, uh, I'm going to recommend I'm reading a fantastic book right now. And just it's something that... um, you know, I I think it's really cool to be able to have these type of books. But, you know, um, I, I think John will appreciate this, but it's the book by J.W. Rinsler, Howard Kazagin, A Producer's Life. Ah, uh, uh, yes, hmm, I want to read that. It's yeah. phenomenal so far. Uh, this guy has an incredible work history. Work with some of the greatest names in Hollywood. Uh, you know, and it's it's phenomenal uh, so far. And it's just really interesting to see Hollywood from a time where Hollywood was really changing. Um, and he's involved with people who are part of old school Hollywood as we move out of that. And it's just, it's such a great book so far. I'm about a third of the way through, but I'm already recommending it because I'm just finding it so much fun. And uh, it's also, of course, been in the news because of some fantastic quotes from Marsha Lucas, who did interviews <laughs> for this book, which have been, f- they're phenomenal. And it's so cool that she got a chance to do this. And, you know, this is the, uh, I believe it is the final book from J.W. Rinsler, who um, unfortunately passed away. And so um, I highly recommend getting this book uh, as a way to, um, you know, support his family still. So uh, highly recommend. I just I really do. I, I couldn't recommend it more. And I'm not even finished with it. I'm just really enjoying it. It's that good. So and it's a high quality book too. It has some great pictures in it from his life and the films that he's worked on and everything got really high quality paper that it's uh, printed on as well. So you, it just, it's, it's a really nicely done book. So I, I hope everybody will pick that up. But um, John, if people want to catch up with you, where can they find you? Well, you can either uh, shine the bat signal in the sky or you can look up Kessel Junkie online. K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. signal? No, it's, it's actually, it's the Bane signal. Oh, okay. Because I like to Makes walk around sense. just going, bomb, bomb, <laughs> bomb. <laughs> best, best screen bane. I mean, I think we, we, we can all agree on that. Um, but yeah, Castle Junkie Online, uh, you can find me, yeah, Twitter, uh, Letterboxd, all of that stuff. You can find me over in the Nerd Party ho- co-hosting uh, two shows. One of them is called House Lights, where we look at the works of directors broken up by decade, by their entire career, by different types of formulations and computations that we work out along the way. And you can find me co-hosting a show called aggressive negotiations, which is a star Wars podcast that I host with you, Matt, but Christy, where can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then also, of course, I do a show with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabers and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet. And we are coming back this week. Yay! Amanda's back from her wedding and honeymoon. And um, we might be talking about some old school Disney stuff or possibly um, me watching Labyrinth for the first time. Oh, who knows? Ooh. 
yeah. So check it out, Sabres and Spells. And uh, you can find me here uh, on the network doing so many different shows. Of course, the 602 Club here. And, you know, don't miss Snyder Cut as well as Assembling Avengers that John and I do. In fact, Assembly Avengers just started. We're going back through all the Marvel movies together. And uh, as this comes out, uh, you, I know, are all eagerly anticipating our take on the Incredible Hulk. So I hope you will check that out. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing Literary Treks, Orb, and Warp 5. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And on Warp 5, Chris Jones and I are celebrating 20 years of Star Trek Enterprise by looking at every single episode of that series. And then, aside from doing aggressive negotiations with john on the nerd party network you can also find me with a finished show that i did with dre kaufman we talked through every single chapter of the harry potter series one chapter at a time on owl posts so please do check that out uh and uh just a quick note too uh christy's co-host over on sabers and spells amanda's going to be joining us as we talk about the eternals this year so we've got some great films coming up for you with no time to die coming to theaters dune the eternals ghostbusters afterlife i mean we've got actual new movies that are going to be coming out that we'll be able to talk about so that's really exciting so we hope you'll join us then but thank you so much for joining us now and more butt shots you hear (laughs) 